Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, March 19, 2014, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, historians and brothers Drs. Gill and Tevi Troy provide an in-depth look into how media and literature have shaped the leadership styles and worldviews of American presidents. Good evening. Uh, indeed, as Louise mentioned, I've been lucky enough to be on this stage talking about presidential wives, presidential families, presidential mothers. Uh, we've skipped presidential brothers, and we haven't done presidential historian brothers, but now I think we're <laughs> up to that. And when we talk about presidential brothers, of course, we get lots of bad karma, because we think of uh, the beer-guzzling, Libya-loving Billy Carter. We think of the corrupt Donald Nixon, although he and his brother Richard has something in common then. Um, <laughs> We, we think of Roger Clinton, whose Secret Service code name was Headache. Uh, but I, I want to kind of change that and, and talk about the Eisenhowers, uh, who were six brothers. And when Dwight Eisenhower was Dwight Eisenhower, he was really the most important American uh, of his time, uh, along with Franklin Roosevelt. And he was the leader of the forces in World War II that many people said were the most powerful forces that had been arrayed on this earth since the Roman Empire. And reporters would frequently come up to Mrs. Eisenhower and say, you must be so proud of your son. And she would say, which one? And that's really the tone that my parents set in the house. Um, And it wasn't a boastful which one. It was, all my sons are important. And we had a kind of feeling in the Troy family of more is more, uh, that one person's impressive resume going on to the White House, serving as Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, writing this extraordinary book, which is on sale, what Jefferson read, Ike wedged, and Obama tweeted, um, and there are only 300 shopping days left to Christmas and Hanukkah, um, that the more we honored him, it didn't detract from me or from my other brother, Dan. So tonight, I'd actually like to dedicate uh, this conversation to my parents, uh, Bernard and Elaine Troy, who once upon a time would have moved heaven and earth to be here, but instead are in Florida and waiting for the podcast, although we'll have to explain to them what a podcast is and how to click on. Uh, anyway, it's really, this is a thrill. It, Tevi and I have never shared a stage before. And uh, the first question actually is going to come from Dale. I'm channeling Dale, who apparently when she publicized this, imagined that we had bunk beds, which we did, and that we would talk to each other at night going, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. Uh, Tev, true or not true? Well, the bunk bed part is true. We did not, as Mr. Lay say, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, but we did have a ton of books, as some of our friends in the audience can, can attest. There were books in every room of the house, and they were overflowing, and the shelves had books pouring out of them, and many of them were presidential biographies. And I remember reading your presidential biographies that were made for kids when I, when I was little and seeing the life of Adams or the life of Jefferson, the life of Washington, and those were really influential and inspirational to me. So uh, there was definitely a heavy historical atmosphere in our house growing up. And much as we love our older brother Dan, we were also very much committed to not being lawyers. Um, 
And so, this, well, because he scared us off from it. Right. So. This, this, this is the, the second best alternative. Uh, so you served in the Bush administration, which we all know, especially on the Upper West Side, is tragically unhip. And the notion that somebody from the Bush administration would write a book about popular culture is a little bit of a contradiction. How did you end up writing this book, and uh, how, did, how did popular culture play out in the Bush White House? Yeah, well, first of all, the book is not about hipness per se. It's about how presidents have engaged with popular culture. Some presidents were hip. President Obama, I talk about how successful he is at using pop cultural tools. Other presidents are famously unhip, like Richard Nixon in his awkward meeting with Elvis or in his, um, his terrible appearance on Laugh-In where he was supposed to say, suck it to me, and instead he said, suck it to me. <laughs> so the question is not whether somebody can study hipness if they worked in the Bush White House, but it's how do different presidents engage in pop culture? And what I found in looking at the research to come up with this book is that every president in every administration has had to engage with popular culture to some degree or another. Now, obviously, there are many more manifestations of popular culture today with Twitter and the internet and YouTube and Netflix and TV and movies than, let's say, Washington or Jefferson or Adams had. But pop culture is something that every administration engaged in. And specifically, with regards to your question with the Bush White House, uh, popular culture was important there as well, although President Bush famously was not that interested in what was going on in t on TV. In fact, he gave a speech once where he said, a TV has an off switch for a reason, turn it off. He didn't watch any televised entertainment programming. He did watch sports. Uh, he, oh, he was an all-American right, man. He was an all-American man. But the interesting thing about Bush that I think comes out in, in the book is that he was a huge reader. He read something like 60 to 90 books a year. He knew how to read? No, sorry. Well, <laughs> he would constantly get that joke, but the truth uh -huh. is he was a very heavy reader, may have been one of our heaviest readers since Harry Truman as president, read serious books of biography and history. He read 14 Lincoln biographies while he was president. Oh. But he doesn't... I don't want to say get credit for it, but he doesn't have that reputation. Part of that is the media. That there was one reporter in 2000 who called him a graduate of Harvard and Yale who does not read books, <laughs> which is just a factually verifiable statement, and that was false. So the reporter didn't do much, much research. But the part of it was also Bush's fault, because in 1978, he lost an election to a, a fellow named Kent Hance in Texas. And Kent Hance derided Bush in the election as some pointy-headed, Northeastern intellectual from Harvard and Yale coming down to Texas to tell us what to do. Imagine that that was George Bush's reputation in, in 1978. And after that race, he promised he'd never be outcountried again. And he put on the leather jacket and the cowboy hat and the jeans, and he created this persona. And the persona was very successful in getting him elected governor twice and president twice. But it also was hard to shake when he became president and wanted to show more seriousness it was hard for him to do. My favorite part, if I can use that, uh, the Star Report, was when they did the inventory of the White House Library. And you saw that all these presidents are reading these big books about the presidents. And it's a little bit kind of on-the-job training, but there also is a kind of grandiosity to it. Like, i got to measure up to Lincoln. I, you know, if I read 16 of them, I just, might, I just might get it. So last week we had this amazing popular culture moment where Barack Obama uh, goes on the Internet um, between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis. And there's this whole back and forth between Barack Obama and, uh, and this well-known celebrity actor, at least well-known to a certain generation. Um, and uh, I think my favorite exchange was when Galifianakis looks at Barack Obama and says, so what does it feel like 
knowing that you're going to be the last black president elected. And Barack Obama looks at him and goes, what does it feel like knowing this is the last time you're going to speak to a president? Uh, is this dignified? Is this the kind of thing that the president of the United States should be engaging in when Russia is taking over Crimea, Syria is imploding and exploding, and there's a lot of serious work to be doing? It, it's a great question. and Thank you. I leave it to others necessarily to answer. I'll give my, my thoughts on it, but I will first tell my favorite exchange. This an interview brought together my two favorite subjects, presidents in pop culture and healthcare, because the idea of it was President Obama was trying to drive traffic to healthcare.gov. And Zach Galifianakis kind of gave this resigned look and said, okay, you have something to plug, let's hear it. And Obama started talking about the health care plan, the Affordable Care Act, and Zach Galifianakis said, Oh, yeah, that's the thing that doesn't work, which I thought was, was kind of harsh. Um, but uh, Obama kept going on and about the health care plan, and then Salah Galifianakis said to the president of the United States, is this what they mean by the drone program? <laughs> so he was kind of rough uh, on the president. The president, as you said in your exchange, gave it back. And I think it is an open question as whether it's dignified. Now, it has clearly been politically advantageous to President Obama to use pop culture. He was very successful in 2008 in showing how hip he was to pop culture, very successful, I'd say even more successful in 2012 in a couple of ways. First of all, he used celebrities to his advantage. They give the president an aura of hipness, which is helpful. They are huge fundraisers for the president, and they also are amplifiers. They go out there and spread his message when he asks, and he has done so, and specifically on, on the healthcare thing, but in the election, in fact, he went to a fundraiser in Hollywood, and he said, you guys are going to have to carry this campaign like you did in 08. So he's very cognizant of the way he, he works it. But he also appeared on a whole bunch of soft media interviews. He wasn't showing up in the 2012 campaign on Meet the Press or on the hard news programs. He was showing up on the shows like the David Letterman show. He was showing up on The View multiple times. And he was deliberately trying to target certain audience. And in fact, I wondered if he was doing this to avoid tough questions, and I just read a very interesting campaign book that suggests that he wasn't trying to avoid tough questions. He was looking for venues that would reach the audience he was trying to get to come to the polls, and he was successful at getting a huge youth turnout in 2012, just like he had in 2008. Now, whether this is dignified is, is another question, and let me just raise one issue on this. So he's very successful reaching out in soft media in 2008, 2012, and going and getting the voters he needs to come to the polls. But then in 2013, there's this incident with Syria. They're using chemical weapons. It's really a, a major problem. And he gets up there and he gives a standard traditional presidential address from the White House with the, the cameras looking at him in a static environment. And the speech, by all accounts, left and right, was a dud. And he got no backing from Congress, from either party, to support what he wanted to do in Syria. And he basically deferred to Vladimir Putin on what to, go, what to do next. And now we see Vladimir Putin was emboldened, if not by that, but by many other actions in, in the administration. So it raises the question of, is this dignified? And if you engage in this kind of behavior, it may be advantageous politically, but does it harm the stature of the presidency, and does it make the people less interested in hearing what you have to say when you're talking about a bummer of an issue like Syria in a more serious venue? Huh, so in some ways, because it becomes presidency light, then when you have to be serious, it, it tra detracts. Right, it takes away an arrow in your quiver. So I recently was reading something where George Will is complaining about Bill Clinton being undignified, and the television critic from the Baltimore Sun pushes back, and he says, according to George Will, Undignified is basically code word for not being white, 
not being male, not being connected to the Greeks and the Romans. What's this dignified thing, and why is it so important to us when we talk about the presidency? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, in, I read George Will's com- column this week where he quoted Animal House. And I really, I didn't know how to process that. I mean, the last person in the world who I think would be quoting Otter from Animal House. But there is an issue of presidents have to be enlightened and seem like they have gravitas and be willing to lead the people. You also have to get elected. So you have to appeal to the common man and have some kind of interaction with people so that they feel that you understand their concerns. In fact, Obama and Romney polled very tight on most issues in the last campaign, but the one issue that Obama had a huge advantage over Romney over, uh, on was this question of, does he understand my issues, does he understand my problems? And Obama was much better at relating to the people, not just on economic issues, but by talking about the TV shows that, the, that people watched. Whereas when Romney made pop culture references, he referred to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he referred to Seinfeld both of which are very funny and I've watched in my time, but those are references that are two decades and three decades old. So it's not like he was seeming up to date with what people were interacting with. So, Well, maybe his I, voting block was there. Right. <laughs> maybe, but he didn't get enough of them to right. come to the polls. So, um, so I, I think dignity is an important issue and it shows to, uh, it, it speaks to your ability to, to lead the people, but you also have to relate to the people in order to get elected. And is this part of the, Tension between being king and being prime minister, that the king part you have to have the dignity and the prime minister part you have to have that popular touch? Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that because the prime minister has to get elected, it's true, but the prime minister also is leading the nation and does have to have leadership skills. So I, I think that the American president has to balance these two very difficult things. It's hard for anyone to pull off one of them and the, the American president has to do both has to be a man of the people, but also has to have these leadership qualities. And the founders had this vision, in fact, of enlightened leaders presiding over an educated populace. And um, if you read their letters and their writings, there's a seriousness and gravitas that goes throughout. And it was only later in our history that this notion of having to appeal to the common man developed. It's time for a reading uh, from what Jefferson read, Ike watched, and Obama tweeted, which is on sale at the bookstore. Um, And this way you can say, I went to a reading, which sounds very literary and sounds much fancier than just, you know, I went to two brothers talking. Uh, A number of presidents, in fact, have been deliberately inauthentic about their cultural appetites. What does that mean, and why would there be this kind of falseness? So presidents have to get elected, as I've been saying, and they try to highlight different aspects of themselves. So when I was looking at this book and trying to determine what presidents read or watched or, or tweeted, there is a filtration effect. You don't necessarily know that a president read a book or saw a movie. You know that you were told that he read and saw, read or saw or listened. And I found in throughout history, there have been a number of times where presidents kind of conveyed that they were reading something in order to say something about themselves or not convey that they were reading something. So Bill Clinton, for example, was a huge reader of mysteries. He would read something like three to four mysteries a week But he also read some serious public policy books, and he highlighted the reading of the the public policy books. Ronald Reagan had this ability to relate to the common man, and he was very good at it. But he also, at the same time, had this reputation as an amiable dunce, which is what Clark Clifford called him. Now, his staff was aware of that. And at one point, Marlon Fitzwater, who was his press secretary, saw that Reagan was reading a serious work of nonfiction and asked Reagan if it was okay if Fitzwater told the press that. uh, he said specifically that it might counteract this impression of you as just reading Louis L'Amour novels. And Reagan said to him, 
no, Marlin, I don't think we need to do that. So that was a form of inauthenticity by Reagan. The Bush uh, cowboy thing was a form of studied inauthenticity. And then another one who um, had a level of inauthenticity was Kennedy. Kennedy is known for this famous dinner in 1961 when Pablo Casals came and performed at the White House. This was a legendary activity. Casals hadn't performed in, in the US in decades. And all of the key literary people and the cultural people from New York and Washington descended on, on DC to, to attend this event. And people still talk about, about this famous event. The truth is, though, that Kennedy knew almost nothing about classical music, had no interest in, in classical music, and in fact, had to have handwritten notes from the White House social secretary telling him when it was appropriate to applaud at a classical performance. <laughs> so Kennedy was really deliberately inauthentic, but it definitely helped him purvey this image of him as someone who was a, a cultural elite. And then after he died, Jackie lied and claimed that he loved Camelot, which also- Which he did not do. And, and Arthur Schlesinger kind of mocked it and said if Kennedy had been alive, he would have mocked anybody who tried to put forward this notion of, of Kennedy liking Camelot. You mentioned the Founding Fathers. Let's look at them. There was a great cartoon from the 2012 primaries where Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are battling it out. And you have George Washington and Je Thomas Jefferson with their wigs. And the question is, what would they be thinking? And I had a great conversation with my students about it because part of it was, what would they be thinking seeing an African-American and a woman battling it out? But the part that I want to get is, what would they be thinking about all this stuff, this tweeting and this between the two ferns, and, and what would they think about this whole dignity question, and, and would they think that ah, the republic has fallen? Well, I don't know if they'd think it was fallen, but they, they, they'd definitely be shocked by it. In fact, I have in the book a tweet that Obama sent. Obama has a Twitter account with 40 million followers. That's more people than watched him give the last State of the Union address. Only 30 million people watched that. And I recreate the exact text of this tweet. Now, not all of the tweets come from President Obama from that account. But when they do, it has the letters B-O at the end of it. And so I reproduce in the book this tweet with the hashtags and the abbreviations and the at signs and the initials and the B-O at the end. And I say that this tweet, the text of this tweet, would have been gibberish to the founding fathers or anyone of their generation. But the founding fathers were very engaged in American culture, specifically through reading. They were heavy, heavy readers. They were quite literate. In fact, literacy rates in the colonies at the time were higher than literacy rates in Europe. And people in Europe actually commented on how well-read and how frequent it was that Americans could read. And at the time, books were incredibly expensive in the, in the colonies. I have the statistic in the book that in 1776, a first edition of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations would have cost 615 of today's dollars in the colonies. That's a lot of money to, to buy a book. Nevertheless, Adams had a library of 3,000 books. Jefferson had a library of 6,000 books. And they saw these books as an investment. They immersed themselves in the ideas in these books. And the books had ideas that helped generate the American Revolution and helped sustain the American Revolution. So these, the founders took ideas very seriously. And it was really a part of their worldview and, and their, their very being. And so I, I think that they kind of set the model for us. Now, a patrician leader who had a popular touch was Franklin Roosevelt. Age of the radio, he understands how to reach the people. How, how does he play out in your book? Roosevelt was brilliant at the use of the radio. And you say, uh, you correctly say he was a patrician. He was a Harvard-educated patrician, but he knew how to connect to people. So when he gave his famous fireside chats, he, first of all, he only gave them two or three times a year. People think that he was constantly on the radio. He was very afraid of being overexposed, and so he only appeared a couple of times a year. 
When he gave these addresses, he had a special spray that he would spritz in his throat. I can say spritz in New York, right? <laughs> he would spritz in his throat to make his voice sound right. He had a slight whistle from a gap in his teeth, and he put a false tooth in to, to cover that up. He had paper that wouldn't rustle so that when he flipped the pages, people wouldn't hear it over the microphones, and they would think that he was speaking off the cuff when indeed he was writing, reading from a carefully prepared text. And with respect to that text, he went through the text and would cross out any of the five and $10 words. So he would speak to the people in their language so that they would understand it. So he was very conscious of this idea of trying to remain a, a, a man of the people. In fact, there's another great story that when the Queen of England came to visit Franklin Roosevelt, he deliberately put hot dogs on the menu to show that he could eat common man food even with the Queen of England. Reagan also, in the Reagan Library, you can see how all his advisors would put these fancy terms and um, these fancy concepts, and he would just come down and, and, and give plain man language. And the interesting thing about Roosevelt also is that when he first was on radio as a New York governor, the first time he was ever on radio, he gave a talk, and then he said, wow, that sounded pretty good, wasn't it? And didn't realize that it was still on, that it was still on the air. And he learned, you got to watch that red, dot, that red line. And, um, yeah, but, but to be fair to, to Roosevelt, he wouldn't have been president without his mastery of, of radio. He gave addresses at the 1924 and 1928 Democratic conventions where he had this insight that nobody else really had at the time, that you're not speaking to the hall, you're not speaking to the political hacks who show up to the convention, but you're speaking to the broader national audience. And he targeted his remarks to that larger audience that he could reach over the radio. And in fact, when he was inaugurated, uh, in, in 1933, he was already reaching tens of millions of people on the radio. When Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, he only reached 10,000 people and without the amplification powers of the microphone. And what about the modern presidents? Jimmy Carter, people like that, how have they fared in popular culture? Well, my favorite story about Jimmy Carter is people know about his famous malaise address, although he didn't actually use the word malaise in the speech. It was uh, Ted Kennedy who tagged it with that, that malaise word. But it has become so much part of Carter's aura that in an episode of The Simpsons, when they unveil a statue of Jimmy Carter in Springfield, the words at the base of the statue are malaise forever. <laughs> and one of the people in the crowd says, Jimmy Carter, he's one of history's greatest monsters. <laughs> so Carter does not fare well in popular culture today. I think he did reach a cultural moment, and I think his I'll Never Lie to You was real, really a clever reaction to Nixon. And uh, the, the fact that the movie All the President's Men came out uh, right around that time when he was running for president against Ford, and all Ford wanted was for people to forget Watergate, and this, this very successful movie made $70 million, uh, was giving attention to Watergate. But once Carter was in the White House, I was amazed to learn what a big movie fan he was. He saw 480 movies in one term as president. That's 120 a year or two to three a week. So while the country was having a pretty rough four years, he was spending a lot of time watching movies. Well, as long as he had fun. Um, somebody had to in the 1970s. Well, in fact, on, on that point, uh, when he went to the White House, he learned this, that he had this great um, ability. He said to Rafshoon, Gerald Rafshoon, his media advisor, we can, do you know we can get any movie we want? And he specifically asked Rafshoon to find all the movies that they had missed over the two years while he was running for president, <laughs> show them to him in the White House. <laughs> So basically what you're really arguing here is that this is about democracy. This is a book about democracy, as I'm interpreting it, that in order for there to be a democratic conversation between the leader and the led, you have to use all the media that are at your fingertips, and popular culture is a valid one. Is that, in a sense, the 
the message that I should be taking away from the book? I would not say all the media that's at, at your fingertips. I would say you have to selectively use the media that are most appropriate for you. So I think President Obama has been very successful at using Twitter and Facebook, but I'm not sure that would work for every presidential candidate. And different presidents have used different forms of media. And in fact, I think that is the point of the book, that in order to deal with this raucous, often unruly democracy, you have to find the forms of media that best work for you and your aura and use them to your political advantage. So it's a slightly different take on your interpretation. And it's really a matter of, so there really is kind of a nuance here that um, is often missing when people talk about it, because you, you get to, it's, it's usually more this black-white thing of, was it dignified, was it not, did it work, did it not? And you have to say, no, we have to have a kind of a mix of, 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 of vehicles and tactics. Yeah, and, and presidents have adjusted their tactics over time. So uh, Bill Clinton, for example, I think he realized that he had overdone it a little bit with pop culture, although he was very successful in using pop culture in the, in the 92 campaign. He had that famous sunglasses and saxophone incident on Arsenio Hall, which was really groundbreaking. But when he got to the boxers or briefs question on MTV and he answered that question, that really seemed like an assault on presidential dignity, and he dialed it back after that point. So I, I think presidents make adjustments um, in, in their terms. Uh, George W. Bush, I, I said, um, in his first term, nobody knew that he was a reader. In his second term, they tried to put the word out, and I think there was a more conscious effort to say, hey, look, this guy reads serious books in, in a serious way. Well, I think one of the mistakes we make when we talk about the presidency is we tend to talk about the presidency of George Bush, the presidency of Bill Clinton. And when I was looking back, for example, at the George W. Bush period, I felt that there were actually six Bush presidencies. And you take critical moments like 9-11, like uh, Hurricane Katrina, and you see how the, the presidency changes. And, and it's very much on a learning curve. And if we actually had a, a more fluid understanding of how presidencies develop and look at them as stages, we actually would have, we'd, we'd get less into this kind of thing of how good are they doing because it's, it's, it's complicated and it's, it's a hard job. <laughs> yeah. And there's more to that th than you know. Having worked in the White House, I saw that the staff completely turns over. I mean, there are a couple of aides that might, like a Valerie Jarrett has stuck with President Obama since the beginning, but many of the top people are gone and they usually don't last more than one or two years. And sometimes there is a decline in the level of talent. People perhaps the, the most loyal people or the closest people or sometimes the most talented people are there in the first couple of years. Not always the case, but that, that often happens. And I have a friend who recently left the Obama White House who said that the people he was dealing with, one of the reasons he left is the people he was dealing with were interns in the first term who had been promoted up the ranks and now were at his level. And he said, you know, maybe it's time to go. So uh, the, the, there are multiple presidencies in administration in part because the president has something like 4,000 to 6,000 people who work in administration and about 400 White House aides, and those people turn over all the time. And Reagan's first term had the A team, and the second term had the B team of Don Reagan and company. Yeah. In fact, I call we saw that, how successful it was. Okay. I call that the worst trade in presidential history, <laughs> when Jim Baker, who was a tremendously successful chief of staff, traded jobs with Don Reagan, who was Treasury Secretary. They switched. And with Baker, the president barely knowing it. Right. And Baker was still a good Treasury Secretary, but Don Regan was a terrible White House Chief of Staff. The wrong skill set. Yeah. Um, your turn. So I, I want to talk about Bill Clinton a little bit, but I, I, I was loath to do it since I know you're writing a book on Clinton. Can you tell me a little bit about this upcoming Clinton book and what you've seen about Clinton and culture? Well, you mentioned that incident of... Uh, Bill Clinton and, on the Arsenio Hall show. So what's going on? In the, in, the, in the 1992 campaign, Bill Clinton is being hit 
in, um, in New Hampshire with the Jennifer Flowers rumors proved to be true. The rumors about draft evasion proved to be true. Uh, the, then in the, in the New York primary, he says he didn't inhale. No one quite believes him. Um, and even though he battles his way and becomes the comeback kid and, um, and is successful in getting the nomination by the spring of 1992, he's feeling like his campaign is drifting. And in order to jumpstart the campaign, he goes on the Arsenio Hall show and he puts on these dark uh, sunglasses and he plays Heartbreak Hotel. Not and, very well, um, according to the critics. Not very well, but I don't know. I recently watched it on YouTube and it seemed pretty damn good to me. Um, and actually, Arsenio Hall's drummer looked at Bill Clinton and said, you know, if that music thing doesn't work out, you might want to consider running for president. Uh, and this really changes the conversation. And it puts Bill Clinton on the map. It shows that he's not this uptight yuppie with... Uh, uh, a, a, a wife from hell. Um, they start bringing out, and this is actually a quote from the New York Times. Okay. Um, they called the yuppie wife. From, they called Hillary Clinton the yuppie wife from hell. That wife um, from hell may be our next president. Right. So I just want uh, you to be careful and, in your language. And they and they and they roll out Chelsea Clinton, who they'd always been very careful not to use, but building up the Democratic convention, they use it, and Bill Clinton becomes the master uh, of his day of using popular culture. The book that I'm writing is looking at Bill Clinton in the context of the 1990s. We have all these books about Bill Clinton's. Presidency. We have all these biographies of Bill Clinton, but there hasn't really been a book looking at Clinton in context, looking at the extraordinary changes that are going on in the 1990s in popular culture, in the media, the digital revolution, Amazon is being invented, uh, eBay, Google. We're entering into a new world, and the book I'd written about Ronald Reagan in the 1980s was really looking backwards. It was the 80s was a way of reconciling with the 1960s, and I'm arguing that the 1990s is really inventing the 21st century. So I'm having a really good time because I'm telling the Clinton story, which is always fascinating and pathological <laughs> and inspiring and brilliant, uh, but also getting into really the fundamental changes that are helping to shape our world today, politically, culturally, intellectually, technologically, ideologically. I'm glad you mentioned the Reagan book because that is my favorite book that you've written. And I've read them all. They're all great, and they're in the library. You the double check from my mother. Oh, it's your mother, too. <laughs> and, and many of them are available in the library, and you can purchase them for signing after. But that Reagan book really inspired me, in a, in a way, because I saw the way you folded popular culture into the conversation about Reagan, how you couldn't really understand Reagan in the 1980s unless you understood what was going on in pop culture. I remember specifically, you talked about the rise of urban crime, and you, showed, you, you highlighted the show Hill Street Blues, and you talked about what, what that told us. And then uh, you talked about the rise of the black middle class, and you talked about the, the Huxtables on the, on the Cosby show. What gave you this idea to pursue this, this this mix of pop culture and politics that obviously has been influential to me as well. Well, having frittered away so many hours watching Hill Street Blues, <laughs> I had to put it to good use. Um, I've forced my wife to watch all kinds of shows like Beverly Hills 90210, and I said, no, it's for the students. It's so I can be hip, um, and I can speak to them. But, and there's a certain truth to that. You want to, you know, there, there's, a, there's a tendency, it goes back to the Romney um, point you made, that there's a tendency to refer to your popular culture reference points. And if you don't stay up to date, uh, then you can't really have a, a conversation with 21st century students. But with Ronald Reagan in particular, there was an I had the sense that we weren't getting the whole story. And I read all, I'd read all these books about the presidency. And I also have always loved these decade books, the books on the 50s, Eric Goldman's book on the 1950s. I have a friend who said, I became a historian when I saw that you could use I Love Lucy in uh, a book and, and, and make it work. Um, and, and so there are these decades books that talk about the popular culture, and then there are these presidency books that talk about the presidential culture. And it seemed that especially 
as popular culture and president and, and political culture start to become more integrated, we needed to put them together. And the fun thing for me about that book, and I'm trying to replicate it with the Clinton book, was the chapters are 80, 81, 82, 83. Each chapter is a different year. And in the particular year, I take a theme, a location, and try to weave it together with Ronald Reagan as the central character in the 80s and Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And when you look at the way Ronald Reagan, who obviously came from Hollywood, and when he was accused of being a showman and being a mere actor, he said, I don't know how anybody could do this job without having been in show business. Um, and, and you realize that especially in the age of television and then in the age of Twitter, you need to have a certain kind of showmanship. And it seemed to me that that was the way to do it. And, um, and it was also, it, it becomes a fun book to write because we sometimes get so into the, you know, the dry policy issues, which are important, um, that to bring in the popular culture just brings it alive. I'm glad you're trying to replicate that because, as I said, that book, and it's, the title is Morning in America, is my favorite of your books, although I have enjoyed all of them. How did you get in more broadly into being a historian? I mean, it's fun to talk about bunk beds and the fact that we've read books, but how did you decide to actually pursue the path of becoming a historian? It's a many-year path. You've also famously said to me many times that of all the people you went to Harvard with to get your PhD, you're the only one with both tenure and a spouse. So how did you pursue that path, and how have you successfully navigated it? In 300 words or less. Yes. Um, first of all, I, you know, I, I think for me, a lot of it was about stories, that we grew up on stories, um, both from our parents, especially from my father, who was a social studies teacher in high school, um, and our grandparents. It was always about stories. And I, I, like you, kind of have an allergy to kind of the scientific study of history, the quantitative study of history. I think that sucking the life out of history. Um, to me, it's about individuals. It's about contingency. It's about drama. And uh, when I actually started as an undergraduate, because I loved politics, I thought I would be a government major. And what I discovered was political science is a contradiction in terms. There is no science to politics. And if you try to make it a theory, if you try to reduce it to some kind of formula, if you try to say, this is the way it's going to work, and then political scientists these days are even trying to get predictive, like economists, you're missing the, the, the beauty of life. You're missing the chaos of life. And the way to understand that was to go down uh, the street and, and join the history department. So that was the first move. Um, and then the second move, in, indeed, was seeing my uh, older brother, Dan, get into that law school mode where it was so clear what you had to do. You had to get into the good law school, and then you had to get the clerkship, and you had to get on the law review, and then you get the good job. And it just seemed... Or else. Or else. Um, it just seemed too clear. And the contrarian in me said, there's got to be something else. Um, and I just loved reading history. And basically, it started when I walked in to the uh, bookstore at the start of my senior year. And I saw there were all these books that I hadn't read yet. And I wanted to read more. So the question became, how could I do that? And it turned out the only way you could get a fellowship was by signing up for a PhD program rather than an MA program, because they didn't pay for the MAs. They paid for the PhD. So I said, OK, I'll sign up. And uh, then you start walking the walk and talking the talk. And before you know it, you're in your first year of graduate school. And I enjoyed it. So I said, OK, I'll do a second year, third year. And, then, um, and similarly, when I went on the job market in, in, in the uh, late 80s, when I was on the job market, it was such a depressing time. Uh, all the jobs were just disappearing. And um, you know, you're a lawyer. You go to law school. You can pick your location and find a job. You get through medical school. Become a doctor, pick a location, find a job. In history, you had to look at the entire North American 
continent uh, as your job market. And if you're lucky, um, you just might get a job. And I was very lucky to get a job at McGill. And even then, when I went to McGill, it was, okay, this is an experiment. Uh, but in the end, I found every day I wake up, it's a teaching day, it's a research day, it's a writing day, each day is a blessing. And not having a boss makes it even better. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Um, it's interesting what you said about going to the Harvard bookstore and being encouraged to read all these books that you hadn't read yet. One of the things that inspired me to go to graduate school is when you told me about oral exams, which is where you had to read 500 books a year and get tested on it. And most people run away in horror. And I said, that sounds cool. And that's one of the things that inspired me to, to get a PhD, even though I didn't want to pursue the academic path. But one historian that both of us have, have read and, and enjoyed is Arthur Schlesinger. And Arthur Schlesinger said one statement that really stuck with me, that he, he even though he wrote multiple Pulitzer Prize winning books, and and many books that are well known today, he said that one of his biggest regrets, if not his biggest regret, is that he wrote too many articles and not enough books. Now, I know you've written a ton of books. I think you're in the double digits. But you also write a weekly column and have written tons of, of great magazine and, and newspaper articles of the year. How do you, how do you handle that balance? It, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, it's a, and it's a hard uh, issue I often struggle with. First of all, I just want to say that because I became an academic and not a Washingtonian, I get to wear sneakers, and you have to have fancy shoes. That <laughs> Um, <laughs> Is that a way of dodging the question? <laughs> I, I actually started writing articles almost as a form of therapy. Um, the, the process of writing a book is fantastic, and I really enjoy the research, and I enjoy the writing, but it's, it's a marathon, and it takes a long time. And, um, and also, as an academic who doesn't want my books to be highly partisan, I want them to be about politics, but not about partisanship. And when I talk to my students, I say, can we learn about politics without always being partisan? Um, th there's a certain, it, it sometimes can feel a little smothering. You're in the box. Um, you're trying to be academic. You're trying not to be partisan. And that's one side of me that, that I like. But there's another side of me that's more peppery, that's um, a little bit more connected to the, the world, that wants to roll up my sleeves and have, I mean, there's nothing more fun than an intellectual tumble where there's civility and there's respect, but you're, you're going back and forth and you're in the arena. Um, and in a world where there are really different and difficult challenges out there, um, to just sit back and to wait for the three, four, five year process that it takes to, to write a book and to keep it just in the box um, didn't work for my personality. So I found that by having kind of the two careers of one where I'm writing uh, op-eds and uh, sometimes going on television and, and feeling like I'm in the conversation, uh, but at the same time, um, having a chance to write the, the bigger books, I get more of a, a balance. Um, I don't have a dog, so I can't kick a dog. Um, Nor would, would you. Be a terrible thing, because that would be <laughs> insensitive. Um, but you know, all, all these issues sometimes just sort of sit there, and you can sit there and write an 800-word 800 column and get it out, and you can do it quickly. One of the things I've started doing, especially this year, um, because I'm writing this book, is imposing a discipline on myself. So Sunday is column day. Um, and whatever I write on Sunday, I, I, I file, uh, and if I didn't get to it, I'll get to the next Sunday. So I really have Monday through uh, Thursday or Friday to, to, get to, my, um, to get to my book, and that's the only way to go forward. I think it's time for questions. I just want to make one last point. He mentioned the intellectual tumble. If you follow Gil's Twitter feed, at Gil Troy, he got into an intellectual tumble uh, just last week with uh, some guy who did not like one of his columns. So if you do engage with Gil on Twitter, he will engage back. So this is the question period, and of course, questions are short statements that have a question mark at the end. So we'd encourage you not to give speeches. Um, you can see we're very uh, 
addicted to that, um, and uh, encourage you to ask questions. But please do it from the microphones um, so that we can hear you, and it can be recorded, and we can then put it on the podcast, which my parents will have difficulty listening to. <laughs> so what about Lincoln? Lincoln was um, a jokester, uh, dumb jokes, sometimes racist jokes. Was he using popular culture? Uh, was he using, uh, was he dignified? What, what do you have to say about him? I'm glad you asked about Lincoln because Gil and I had talked about mentioning Lincoln in the, in the session and we didn't get to him. So thank you for, for that question. Lincoln was shaped by books perhaps more than any other president. He grew up in a poor rural environment and he was desperate for books. He went, you've all heard stories about him trudging miles in the snow to get the, get the nearest book. But it was hard for him to get books. I mentioned how uh, expensive books were for Jefferson and Adams. It was in many ways, even harder for Lincoln to get books. And he had a relatively narrow selection of books, but some of those books he read over and over and over again, including uh, Aesop's Fables, which he effectively memorized, the Bible, Shakespeare, Parson Weems, Life of Washington, and A History of, of the United States. And he internalized those books and used them in the way he communicated with the American people. So for example, from Aesop's Fables, he learned this way of using stories or jokes to convey a message. And it, it drives his Secretary of Defense crazy in the movie, or Secretary of War back then, in the movie, uh, drives him crazy in the movie Lincoln. But th that is one of the ways he communicated. And I, I happen to think he, he did do it in a, in a pretty dignified way. And um, I, I, I find it quite admirable the way he handled it. How does the uptake of uh, pop culture affect the view of America abroad? That's an excellent question, in fact, and it's a, a great interest of mine. In, in many ways, American presidents were advertisers or marketers for American culture. And, and when an American president goes to a play or, or movie, he is kind of putting his imprimatur on it. And there have been movies that have been helped a great deal by presidents going to see them. So in, 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 um, in, in many ways, the, the American president is one of the chief agents of promoting American culture abroad. Now, I just read this great book by Bill Bryson about 1927. Uh, it's called One Summer. And it talks about all the crazy things that happened in America in 1927, including um, Babe Ruth's 60 home runs and the Lindbergh flight. And one of the things that happened was it talks, it talks about the first talkie. And it said that when you had subtitles and you had silent movies, it didn't matter who the actors were. And in fact, many of the actors in Hollywood were European and had heavy accents, but it didn't matter because it was a silent movie. But once the talkies took over, you needed actors with American accents and American idioms. And through that, and silently, Bryson says, and almost immediately, American culture kind of took over the world. American vernacular took over the world. And I think presidents have, have been part of this story as well by helping to promote American culture. Good question. When Franklin Roosevelt was asked in the 1930s, this is at the height of the Depression, what's the one book he would want communist Russian, Joseph Stalin's Russian, to read? Uh, he said, the Sears catalog. And, and it was a way of saying that, look what we've got. We've got this cornucopia um, of things. And, and, and consumerism, uh, to him, was, was a blessing. I think there's another dimension which we, we skipped over, which is you know, in the age of movies like The American President, in the age of television shows like The West Wing, how the fictionalized version of the presidency both affects Americans and affects uh, perceptions of America abroad. And one of the things that struck me about the West Wing, for example, which I loved, uh, first I'll give them a compliment and then I'll, I'll give the criticism. 
they were so effective as educators. There's one episode where they're talking about filibustering. And it's a hard word, it's a hard concept, it gets into the arcane rules of the Senate, and they make it a joke. And one person explains what a filibuster is, and the second person explains. By the third time, the viewer is in on the joke and is watching each person explain it, but is also education is repetition and has learned about filibustering. What they missed, and I think you as having worked in the West Wing can confirm, is because in a successful television show, MASH, all in the family, has to have a sense of family, and has to have a sense of community, which we all want, then want to be a part of, because we like the characters. The West Wing was way too lovey-dovey. And it, every presidential administration I've read about, there's this intense competition for FaceTime with the boss. There's this intense competition. If I'm up, you're down. It's not like the more is more Troy vision, but it's the zero-sum ball game. And there was none of that um, in, in, in the West Wing, uh, except when it was you know, particularly choreographed. They were a family, and we had to be, it had to be a family for us to have fun watching it, but it really missed the truth. Two quick points on that. First of all, uh, we have a mutual friend who worked in the Clinton White House, and when I got a job in the Bush White House, I called this friend up and I asked him for advice, and his number one piece of advice was watch your back in the White House. Now, fortunately, I, I did not find that to be too much of a problem in, in my experience in the White House, but it, it is certainly something that's endemic to White Houses. But secondly, since you mentioned Stalin, I have to tell the Stalin story I have in my book. Eisenhower was a huge fan of Westerns, and he has Nikita Khrushchev come visit him. And Khrushchev he asked what kind of movie they're going to watch. Eisenhower says a Western. And Khrushchev explains that he and Stalin used to watch Westerns together. And then after the Western, Stalin would denounce them as this capitalist, imperialist nonsense. But the next day, Stalin would always want to watch another Western. I actually thought, wait, before I, I actually thought you were going to tell the Jim Pinkerton story, which is that when Tevi was in the White House, um, and when people in the, in the Clinton White House, the question that I would get is, what character is he? Is he Josh Lyman? Um, is he Sam? And uh, Pinkerton, who had been in earlier White Houses, said that after the Nixon White House, people were always asking, is he Haldeman? Is he Ehrlichman? Are you going to jail? Um, so in some ways, West Wing was, was an improvement. So uh, recent presidents have written their memoirs, and it seems almost predictable that future presidents w will do that. Um, but some presidents have written other than memoirs. Kennedy's um, Profiles and Courage comes to mind, but I think Hoover wrote on individualism, democracy. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt wrote, wrote books. Can you speak to presidents reading other presidents? Well, that's an interesting question. I thought you were going to talk about presidents writing books, and there, there's a lot of that. You know, I just listened to this uh, podcast. I, I told you um, I'm a big podcast fan, Dale, um, with George Nash, where he talked about Hoover, and that between the ages of 85 and 90, Hoover wrote seven books, which I found astounding. Um, and you're right that um, uh, Roosevelt wrote almost 20 books, including his, his first book about the, um, the 1812 war, which he was finishing as he was a senior at Harvard. Um, I, did, I just wrote a big piece for the Washington Post about presidential memoirs. And one thing I found is that multiple presidents read U.S. Grant's memoirs, which are seen as, by many as the, the most exciting memoir. It was not mostly about his White House experience, but mostly about his Civil War experience. But um, Eisenhower said that he looked at them before he wrote his war memoirs. And Bush, George W. Bush, specifically mentions the, the Grant book and saying he took the Grant approach to writing his memoirs of trying to tell certain stories and episodes rather than just tell one, uh, one timeline. So yeah, there is a sense of presidents not only reading other presidents, 
but also, as Gil was saying earlier, a, a lot of biographies of other presidents. George W. Bush used to say when people asked him about his historical reputation, he said, I just read a book of George Washington, and he, you know, he probably had given how many biographies he read, um, and they're still trying to figure out the reputation of the first George W. I think it'll take a while before they sort out mine. Most presidential memoirs are deadly dull. Um, Bill Clinton's, and, and Clinton's an extraordinary storyteller, and you know the, the, the greatest seducer of the 20th and 21st century, and the book is way too portentous, and it's like a lie. I mean, I remember sitting there in my comfy chair, reading it and falling asleep, reading it and falling asleep. Hillary's book is much better, and many of the first ladies' books, Rosalind Carter's memoir is much better than Jimmy Carter's memoir. And part of it is, I think, when a president is sitting down and writing a memoir, he feels like he has to be telling the whole story, and he's writing for history. And the first ladies, uh, and then the presidents themselves, when they start writing smaller books, uh, Bill Clinton's subsequent books, Jimmy Carter's subsequent books, uh, some of which are terrible, but some of which are very good, um, they, they, can, they can get more into the nuance, and they can get more into the study. I actually just had lunch today with uh, someone who was an editor who was pitched uh, Hillary Clinton's memoirs, and he said that Hillary Clinton, when she was pitching the memoirs, and they were asking seven, eight, ten, she ultimately got, I think, $10 million advance, um, was so effective, and he said the, the most effective thing she did was she, she, when she would tell a story, she didn't just tell what happened, but for example, she tells the story of when, she's, uh, when she becomes the first first lady to um, in, invited, invited, uh, subpoenaed to the grand jury. And you may remember she, she wore that very strange black coat, a very fashionable, uh, it was a real statement, like I'm, I'm going in there with my head held high. And talking to the editor, she says, I'm sitting in this chair, and Ken Starr, the hated Ken Starr, is looking at me. And then she says, this is how I felt. And the editor said, that's when she had me. Because she wasn't just telling the story, but she was telling about her feelings. And that's what you want to see. And presidents, I think, when they're writing the memoirs, feel like feelings have to be left out. And, um, and, and that was really her, her strength. And she says, you know, she's feeling like, I want to wring his neck, but I have to, for this performance, hold myself. And that's a, that's a great moment that really just tells, a, tells so many stories. Also, whether they're good or not, expect more presidential memoirs. The, the supposition is that President Obama will get between 17 and $20 million when he sells his memoirs. And Hillary earned back her advance. Hi. <laughs> Maybe it was a boy-girl difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Oh, feelings, uh, right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I want to go back to some of the earlier comments that were made about how Obama's been dealing with the media. And the media environment obviously has changed. So he's had two interviews with Bill O'Reilly, which were anything but soft. But he's in a situation where um, press conferences, presidential addresses are often not covered, even by the major networks, major cable news networks. Uh, so, don't you think, given that situation, um, doing something like Between Two Ferns, which got something like three million hits on healthcare.gov, is needed and isn't, uh, isn't a wild or crazy idea, maybe isn't even that undignified? I mean, maybe that's something that has to be considered these days. Yeah, a, a couple points. First of all, on the, the soft media uh, I don't think that the soft media, I mean, just by, despite the word soft, doesn't mean that the questions are any better. In fact, um, in Richard Wolff's book, he says that the White House would get, in some ways, tougher questions from these soft media venues because they were more unpredictable. They could guess what David Gregory was going to ask, but they didn't really know what David Letterman was going to ask. Uh, as the question of dignity, I think that uh, it's an open question. It's clear that the Between Two Ferns interview drove tra traffic to whitehouse.gov, and, and that was their goal. 
But I think as a historian, it's important to step back a little bit and see maybe you got this short-term bump in viewers, but long-term, is it good for the presidency? And I think President Obama can answer that question on his presidency for his own, but I think it's an important question to wonder about with respect to future presidencies. Will they feel that they have to keep up in terms of being so pop culture savvy? Your question also raises an important question about the whole notion of culture, popular culture, media, and community building. I mean, I remember one, you know, back in the day of the three-channel universe, the three-network universe, um, when the president was making an address, you really felt like the nation as a community was coming together and watching. And now, in this era of so much fragmentation, um, the act of watching between two ferns is, is a very individualized act. And it doesn't feel like a communal act. And I think that's a real problem that we're starting to have in the United States of America in general. And how we have that sense of social glue, how we have that sense of usness, um, is a, a major issue. What's funny also when you talk about the Galifianakis thing is that um, I, I think they said it actually was six million hits. But last week, the big viral sensation was this uh, thing which a designer did where she took 10 strangers and had 10 strangers who'd never met each other kiss. You know, they, they, she divided them into five couples. And that got like 20 million hits. And that's the thing. So I, I'm watching the two of them and seeing that I'm now judging the president in competition with this kissing video. And that's, and that's the thing that I, I think Tevi was trying to raise it. He should be more in the realm of statesmanship. And this is, I, I think, an enduring issue uh, in America of how we have that sense of statesmanship, how we have that sense of grandeur while also keeping that popular touch. I think we have time for one more question. I'm stunned by the level the reduction in the level of dignity of the presidency, respect for the presidency, and people saying, oh, woe is me, our place in the world. Mm. They go together. <laughs> and when was it okay for it to be okay to be so rude and so outrageously disrespectful of the office? And of course, Obama in there and the way people have treated him, regardless of your politics, is just stunning to the office. I mean, the man will take care of himself, but the office, and then the impact of that on our place in the world. So I, you know, as someone who's been there and also tracking this arc, the arc, as we go through becoming a very flat world and the communication and all that sort of thing, I kind of don't know where it's going. I don't know what to do yeah, with it's that. A, it's an interesting sort of point. I, I vividly remember, let's go back to the Troy household for a second, when I was a young boy and, and Gerald Ford was president and my parents were not fans of Ford and things were clearly not going well in the country. And I said something like, oh boy, he's stupid because that's what I was hearing. But not that word, I was just hearing that it's a problematic presidency. And my mother said to me, don't ever call the president stupid, you have to respect the office. And that was instilled in me from a very young age. So I, I agree with you that you have to, uh, that, that there needs to be more respect for the office than is shown. At the same time, I think the presidents need to respect the office and need to maintain a certain level of dignity. And to the extent that you have the president trading one-liners with Zach Galifianakis, and many of those, as Gil showed, were kind of barbed and pointed. I mean, it almost seemed like he was trash-talking with Galifianakis. I wonder if that has a negative impact on presidential dignity. Ronald Reagan never took his sport jacket off when he was in the Oval Office. That's true. And he had a sense of the dignity of, of the station. And it was old-fashioned, and it was out of fashion, but it worked. And I think you're absolutely right that there's a, you know, it's, it's partially the sense of community and it's partially the sense of presidential dignity. But when, you know, Bill Clinton was debating boxers or briefs with, on MTV, 
he also is involved in lowering the office. And, and, and that's what happens, that you have both the president, because we're in a culture where you're supposed to indulge. You're supposed to play to the lowest common denominator. And so the pressure on the president is to do that. And then you're right, I think it has an impact both on, in, the, in terms of the lack of respect, uh, and then and the, it, internally and externally. But we have a problem with teachers, too. You know, I, we dedicated this evening to my parents, both of whom were school teachers. And, um, from the 1950s when they started to the 1980s when they retired, teachers, New York City school teachers, went from being respected, and you never said a disrespectful word about a teacher too, to being punched in the hallway as my father was uh, toward the end of his career. And, and we do have an issue. Um, you know, where one of the tensions I'm, I'm, I'm looking at in, in, in my book, and you talk about flatness, is we, in this age of horizontal democracy. So on the one hand, we have become a republic of nothing, where we don't have the anchors, we don't have the values we used to have, but we're also the republic of everything. We have extraordinary freedoms. We have extraordinary openness. We have extraordinary pluralism. We have extraordinary diversity. And how we navigate that, how we bring in all that fresh air that we didn't have in the 1950s, but also have some of those anchors um, is, I think, our challenge in the 21st century. And the question is out there. Uh, everyone I speak to from left to right sees it as an issue. And no one has quite yet found the tumblers for what Bill Clinton called the third way, but he called that politically, and we haven't found it morally, ideologically, sociologically, or politically. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.